So for our 40th uh, anniversary celebration, Eddie Dalcour showed up, and uh, he decided to uh, rent an electric vehicle. And uh, he had to go up to Flagstaff. Now, I don't. most people have not been to Arizona, so they don't know. Flagstaff's only 120 miles from here, but uh, it's really uphill. You've got a, a very large hill outside of what's called Black Canyon City, called Five Mile Hill. Uh, and then you go up and over down into uh, the Cottonwood area. I'm sorry, the Verde Valley. And then you've got a huge climb out of the Verde Valley. Uh, up to basically Munns Park is where it sort of evens out, and then into Flagstaff. So uh, it took him all day to find the right charging station for his particular vehicle. And he left for Flagstaff with a 90% charge, got into Flagstaff with a 1% charge on his battery, and had a 3% charge when he got back, and that's downhill. But again, you have to climb out of the Verde Valley, so there's still climbing to be done. Um, and it cost him more than the gas would have cost in a regular car anyways. So just another example of the fact that we are being scammed right, left, and center, and everybody knows it. Well, no, I guess not everybody does know it. I, I, there seems to be a lot of folks who actually think, that is wonderful. Um, yeah, we're getting scammed one way or the other. And uh, so welcome to the dividing line today. I just uh, was thinking about Eddie having been here, and I'm sorry that he had those uh, those issues, but hey, He's the one that rented the EV, so nothing I can do about it uh, along those lines. Um, much going on in the world. If you saw the announcement, uh, the head of Hamas calling on Muslims around the world uh, to enter into jihad on Friday. Now, he doesn't have the right to do that. Okay, Back up. In classic Islamic law, uh, in Sharia, uh, the only person that can call for a state of jihad is the caliph, the head of the the Muslim world. And there is no caliph. There is no caliphate right now. Uh, that's what ISIS was trying to do and proclaiming a caliphate and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And uh, so to, to call out like this is really from a any kind of civilized Islamic perspective is incredibly arrogant but it's obvious that the groups that are breaking off from mainstream Islam and saying hey we're just going to go with what Muhammad said and we're just going to do what Muhammad did uh, don't really care about what developed later on and that's why they turn on each other so easily. You know, that's why Hamas can absorb the PLO and, you know, these people fight each other all the time. Because there's no coherence to hold everything together. So what you need to understand, and we've discussed this many times in the past, but it's been years. In Islamic thought, you have the Dar al-Islam and the Dar al-Harb. The Dar al-Islam is the world that is at peace because it's submitted to Islam. It's submitted to Allah in Islam. Uh, so that would be the Muslim countries. Sort of. Maybe. When, when I say sort of and maybe, I don't like the look that you're giving me over there, Rich. Oh, we're good? Okay. Um, when I say sort of maybe, 
there would be a lot of people that would say that most Muslim countries are not, since they're not actually practicing Sharia, and they're not, uh, for example, the tax structure is not what Islam would have as the tax structure and things like that. You know, like Saudi Arabia, places like that, they would say they're not really part of the Dar al-Islam. They're still part of the Dar al-Harb. The Dar al-Harb is the world at war. And so from, from the Islamic perspective, you're either in submission to Allah or you are at war with Allah. And it is Islam's function to bring the entire world into submission uh, to Allah. And this can is to be done through jihad. So that's the mindset that is behind the head of Hamas's comments when he calls for jihad. Now, for the past two and a half years, the current regime that has taken over control of our nation has allowed our borders to stand open. They Anybody can come in that wants to. Uh, you just have to, you know, walk across the Rio Grande and you're good. No, they're not going to track you down. They're not going to trace you. Nothing. And so there are a lot of folks that are going, how, what might happen on Friday or on some other day? And there is logical, good reason um, to be concerned uh, I noticed Rich mentioned uh, noted it this morning, and someone in our one of our chat channels noticed it as well. I, I was, um, I took the recycle bin out this morning, uh, and I realized, you know, we live. I'm not sure how many miles it is from Luke Air Force Base, but there are certain days, certain mornings, and certain days during the week when it can get really loud. Um, the F-16s, F-18s, whatever it is they're flying out there right now. Used to be one of the... Luke was the premier F-16 training base for a long time. And I, st I still think they have F-16s out there, but they're mainly training people from other countries. F-35s now? Um, it can get pretty loud. Well, this morning was the loudest I think I've ever heard. Now, that can be atmospheric conditions and winds and all sorts of stuff like that. But Rich said they're flying low over his house, much lower than they normally do. And some in our chat channel, who also lives near an Air Force base, said, yeah, I could not believe what was going on, how loud it was for us this morning. It's a different, completely different base. It seems like a lot of stuff was being moved around, um, going other places. Take that for what it's worth. Um, it's just just a story. You know, it's just, I mean, I, I can verify... It was really loud this morning. That's about the best I can, best I can do on that. But yeah, if you know, we don't have wise leaders in our in our nation, so they may be golfing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you know. Again, I don't believe Joe Biden's in control of this nation. Uh, Joe Biden's a senile old man. He's mentally decrepit, uh, so he's being run by other people. They just totter him out, and he says some things, and then he wanders back in. And that's one of the reasons why these things are happening. Uh, the world looks at the United States and goes, <laughs> can't worry, and then not going to worry about them. Um, and, you know, the, the time of American preeminence is over. 
my opinion. And it's just, it's just a how how fast will the slide be, really? Um, but if there were wise people in Washington, uh, they would be looking very carefully at certain locales, certain locations. But of course, they they wouldn't be in Washington anymore because they would have already pulled their hair out by the fact that we have no borders. <laughs> And anybody who wants to can just walk in and go any place they want to. There's no way uh, that you can track all these people and hence know what could be happening in the very near future. So uh, challenging times ahead. You have your microphone up? Well, I was just going to say the unusual thing for me was that the... Oh, I didn't mean to put you over there. Let's put you over there. That's better. Um, it just seemed like... Um, Shall we say you can hear the routine throttle um, of the jet as it's flying over normally uh, and depending on its height? It seemed like they were in a little bit more of a hurry today. Um, I believe, you know, the truckers would call it hammer down. Uh, They they seem to be a lot louder than normal, lower than normal, and certainly more than I've been there, what, four and a half years now. more frequent than I think I've ever seen in that four it was and a half loud. years. So yeah, it was it was it was really rumbling this morning. So who knows? Um, I have no earthly idea. Maybe some of these, maybe some of those planes are from other countries and they're calling their people back and they're taking planes. Or I don't have any idea, but it um, could be an interesting time coming up. Uh, so there's an explanation of the uh, Dar al Islam and Dar al Harb. Hopefully that's helpful to you as you listen to things. Our media doesn't know much about Islam, and so they don't give you much in the way of background to be able to understand language and stuff like that. Uh, So we try to help with some of that. There was, um, let me see if I can find where it went here. Um, Yeah, there was a fella, evidently uh, the Muslims are taking over Times Square and using it for prayers and preaching and so on and so forth in uh, New York City, which is not overly shocking or surprising. Um, Let me see here. Uh, How do I get this? This not giving me a option to make it full screen at all. There's just not even anything there. I don't get it. And I can't go back to the beginning. It's not letting me do that. I hate these things. Jesus! What? All right, how do I... That's frustrating. They're, they're starting to put these, like like the ones on Facebook, the, the narrow ones and stuff like that. Start putting them on Facebook, but... Uh, Facebook, on YouTube, but they don't have the same controls in them. Um, so I just had to hit hit the back arrow. All right, let's see if this works. I, I don't I don't know if it will. Let's let's see if this will if this will function. Moses was not a Jew. Moses was a Muslim. Jesus was not a Jew. 
He was a Muslim. Okay, so, yeah, you can. I mean, it's a little late now, but um, you need to understand that this is not, this is being preached in New York City. Moses was not a Jew. He was a Muslim. Jesus was not a Jew. He was a Muslim. So from their perspective, um, anyone who is truly submitted to Allah is a Muslim. That's what Muslim means. And so this is not some radical idea. It's just, see, what happens is when, when people don't know what Muslims believe in general, and then you hear it for the first time, you're taken aback. You don't, you don't know exactly, if you haven't thought it through. You don't know exactly how to respond to it. And that's one of the reasons that I just, I think most Christians are really hesitant to uh, talk to Muslims because they don't want to get hit with stuff that they're left staying. They're going, I've never heard that before. And then they're afraid to say something that would be exceptionally offensive, uh, stuff like that. And so it's good to hear these things and to be aware of where they're coming from when they make these claims. Now, Islam does not, from a historical perspective, does not come on the scene um, for half a millennium after the death of Christ. But Islam doesn't have any problem functioning anachronistically and pushing its parameters onto the past, even when there's no evidence that anybody in the past would have had any concept of that. You, you must understand, Muslims, when Muslims say, La ilaha illallah, there is no God worthy of worship but Allah. They then say, Wa Muhammad an Rasulullah, and Muhammad is the apostle, the prophet of Allah. They would say, what binds all of the prophets together. And God has sent many, many prophets to mankind. Every people group has had a, a prophet sent by Allah. And what bound them all together was la ilaha illallah. There is one God. They all said that. So since Moses said that and Jesus said that, according to them, they may not have any evidence of that, but they said that. I mean, the Quran quotes Jesus saying that, so that's good enough for them. Um, then that's what holds them all together. Because Muhammad is the final prophet, then well, Muhammad on Rasulullah is added on, and that becomes the universal shahada, the, the the confession of faith. And so they can look backwards and sort of claim any true prophet of the past and say they were Muslim. And that's what that's what he's saying at this point is that you know he he was. Jesus was a Muslim. Okay, looks like it stopped working. Did you have it down? I can't. I'm, all right, we'll just have to skip it because I can't go back to it. I'd, I'd have to hit, have to go back and then scroll through it. And um, so, uh, so just be aware of that perspective uh, that is uh, that is out there. It should be easier for me to use uh, a different program here. Uh, won't have to be fighting with that. Um, all right. Now, here's what I wanted to look at uh, last time. And um, this is a... I ran into this 
yesterday, yesterday at some point, and had it queued up, didn't get to it. This was a debate that Jay Dyer did. Now, Jay Dyer's YouTube channel disappeared. Uh, someone explained to me that it was some kind of a vitriolic flagging takedown dispute with somebody else. I, I guess what that means is, you know, you get one one group that gets all their followers to flag the other guy, and then they do the same thing back and forth, and you try to get each other's channels taken down or something like that. I I don't know. I've never heard of it before, but anyway. And while I was looking for some stuff, I ran across this debate that Dyer did with a Muslim and what I want to invite you to do was to listen to what the Muslim says. We will provide responses. and But ask yourself the question, how would I respond if these things were being said to me? Uh, because again, if, if the opportunity is going to be presented to us to be a witness to the Muslim people, we need to be prepared to do so. We need to have sufficient love in our hearts to be prepared to do that. There's a lot of folks that would say we shouldn't have love in our hearts in the first place. I discovered that in, was that 2018? I think that was 2018. Uh, the Yasir Qadi uh, stuff. I think it was 2018. Um, but this is, I think, Basic fundamental Christian belief. <laughs> we need to be prepared. So uh, we're going to start and stop uh, on this and provide responses. But my invitation to you is, here's a Muslim. Here's a Muslim criticizing your scriptures. How do you respond? We certainly have responded. We certainly have addressed all these things in the past. Um, but uh, hopefully this will be of assistance to you as well. The text? Where is the proof? Show me the proof of transmission of the Pentateuch from Moses. I don't. Okay, now I don't know who this is. I'm sorry. I only have the download, and I don't know who the gentleman is. I, I apologize. I wouldn't even know how to find it again. Um, but uh, it's called the Muslim skeptic. So I, you know, whatever. He says, "Show us the proof of the Pentateuch of the transmission of the Pentateuch from Moses." Well, this is. Um, this is like saying, show us the proof of the transmission of the Quran from the angel Jibreel to Muhammad. But at least that would be in a time period where you could have some kind of evidence, even though there's the, the early transmissional evidence of the text of the Quran is significantly less full than that for the New Testament. But remember, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch itself, is magnitudes of order older than anything in the Quran. And so to, to ask for evidence, physical evidence, is historically laughable. Um, and it's one of the, this is where the equal scales come in. This is something that we have been talking about with Islam since 2006, when I first, well, it may have been, when I first listened to um, Shabir Ali raising questions about the accuracy of the transmission of the text of the New Testament, 
equal scales. Equal scales. Muslims will use arguments against our scriptures that they would never allow to be used against their own. They use one standard for us and a different standard for them. Inconsistency is a sign of a failed argument was the line that I used in 2006 in debating Shabir Ali. I've used it many times since then. But it's important to recognize it. Um, I think this is a horrifically inconsistent argument for a Muslim to use. Why? Because the Quran assumes the existence of the Pentateuch. In fact, anyone who's honest will admit that it is the assumption of the Quranic author that his readers have at least a functional familiarity with what he thinks is the Old and New Testaments. He's assuming that his hearers or readers have that kind of information. So you don't find anything in the Quran that says you don't you don't have anything. In Surah 5, you specifically have the idea that Allah gave the Torah to Moses. And then you have the Jews who are told to judge by what's in the law. And this is uh, 600 years after the time of Christ. How can they do that if it's been lost? So why raise the rather obvious reality that you don't have physical evidence? I mean, we, we keep, we're getting more and more, interestingly enough. I mean, we're finding uh, paleo-Hebrew inscriptions and the stuff that was found um, on Mount Gerizim that comes straight out of the curses and blessings from, from, uh, from Deuteronomy. Uh, we're, we're getting stuff like that. But you would not expect to have what he is demanding that we have. It's a, it's a completely invalid argument. It's, it's absurd. And it's inconsistent for a Muslim to use this kind of hyper-skepticism in light of the acceptance of the content of the Old Testament by the Quran. It's, it's a, a really inconsistent argument. I think even any evangelical Christian scholar is going to claim that the Pentateuch has been preserved. Your argument... That the Pentateuch... Right here. I, I do. You want you want a good want a good example of it? Um, the X-ray uh, radiography reading of the fossilized scroll in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, if you want to go, well, Dead Sea Scrolls way after when it was written. That's true, but they're a whole lot closer than anything else that was written back then. There's nothing in the world in the world as close. I mean, the best you can do is, is some inscription you dig up someplace. There'll be a small portion of something. But the Leviticus scroll that was only recently through x-ray technology unrolled because it, it, it's fossilized. If you, try to, if you try to touch it, it just breaks down. So they use x-rays to read the scroll. It's fascinating technology. They recognized, of course, the inks had certain properties, and so you could differentiate them and, and use computers to unroll the scroll. And guess what it was? It's the Book of Leviticus. It's the Book of Leviticus in the Masoretic tradition. And just like the Isaiah scroll, which is contemporaneous but wasn't fossilized, just like the Isaiah scroll, 
there's no difference between the text that is found in Leviticus there and what's in the Masoretic text a thousand years later. So, Islam has nothing like that. Nothing. Zero. Nada. So, you have to, again, apply a hyper-skepticism, which, given the nature of, for example, um, the narrations of the Hadith or something like that, is just not a place where a Muslim wants to be. It's an inconsistent position to be in. It's unequal scales. So there's lots of evangelical scholars who would affirm the accuracy of that transmission, and you have to simply assume a level of hyper-skepticism, which when you have your own book that has its own textual issues, which is significantly younger, significantly younger, I mean, we're talking, we're talking 1400 BC in comparison to 600 AD. There's a 2,000 year difference, two millennia, and you want to compare these? Uh, yeah, not a, not a, no. Mm -mm. About consistency, you show the different verses on the board. So what? What does that no. actually prove? Which version? Of now, I don't, I don't know. This was just a clip, so I don't know what Dyer was saying. Can't really comment on that. But he, he then asks, which version of the Hebrew Bible are we talking about? The Hebrew Bible are we talking about? Are we talking about the Masoretic text, Septuagint, Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, so these are, anybody who's listened to this program for any period of time at all knows that these are terms that we use regularly. The Masoretic text is the traditional text of the Old Testament. I'm looking for whether I have my Bibli Hebraica Stuttgartensia in here. I don't think I do. Well, I do, sort of. All right. Hold on. We're going back in time here. Pull this baby out. So this is, this was my first... Uh, old and New Testament, Greek-Hebrew, that I had uh, bound together. Um, they even um, um, had to trim off some of the side here. And I've noticed I did, I did dye the page edges, so they're a little bit crinkly right now. Um, haven't opened it up since I, uh, since I did that. But uh, So this is the Masoretic text right here, the Masoretic Hebrew text, now in a font size that isn't overly relevant to me any longer. Um, so there's there's the Masoretic today identified as the Bibli Hebraica Stuttgartensia. Um, only eight substantive differences between that and the 1525 Blomberg text that was used under the King James Version. There are standardized texts uh, the Masoretes did create an incredibly complex and incredibly useful mechanism to guarantee the accurate transmission of the Hebrew text, but they're doing this 900 years after Jesus. And that's what makes the Isaiah scroll and the Viticus scroll so important. Um, they are from 100 years before Christ, Masoretic text 900 years after. No change between them means you do not necessarily have to have alteration of the text itself in transmission over time.
Because there you've got two examples where there, there, there isn't any change. Now, the Jeremiah scrolls uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Jeremiah version, the Septuagint, very different than the Masoretic text. But again, there's a rather obvious reason for that. And that is, if you read Jeremiah, what happened? Uh, where Jeremiah runs afoul of the, of the king and everybody else because he's telling them what God would have them do. So they, they take his scrolls and they tear them up and he has to rewrite them. And so there, there were multiple lines of uh, Jeremiah's prophecies that existed in his day. And that's represented in what we have in the various traditions as well. But he talks about the Greek Septuagint. And I thought for certain, yep, I saw it in the other room. Um, I don't have my uh, exception in here right now. Well, wait a minute. I thought for certain that I did. But anyways, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it is the Bible of the early church. And uh, there are many textual differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Uh, we've discussed uh, Jeremiah 31, the, uh, the New Covenant, and the fact that the uh, Masoretic text has, though I was a husband to them, whereas the Septuagint says, though I despise them. And it's that though I despise them that appears in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8. Um, and that that's a one-letter difference between Baal and Gaal. Not huge, but there is variant there. Now, we are aware of these things. We, as in Christian scholarship anyways, is aware of these things. When there are differences between the early manuscripts of the Quran, 99.999999% of Muslims in the world are not aware of those things. That information is uh, very difficult to obtain uh, and to have access to. Unlike us, we publish critical editions and put them out there and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so there are differing textual... The, the Ibn Masud issue and again, without going into a lot of detail, uh, Ibn Masud was one of the early memorizers of the Quran, and he um, passed on readings that are different from what became accepted into the text of the Quran. And that's one of the reasons why uh, in the Uthmanic revision, of the Quran, uh, after the final version is produced, the order is given to burn anything else. It's because there are differing uh, manuscript traditions, just as there was in the days of Jesus. In Israel, you would have what we would call the proto-Masoretic readings, and you'd have the proto-Septuagintal readings, um, and some readings that are found in the Targums and the Peshitta and things like that. You have the same thing uh, in the Quran, the difference being that in the 
transmission of the text of the Quran, you have the caliphate. You have a Muslim state that produces an official version. How would you like to have the Joe Biden version of the Bible? Yeah, great. Um, not really trustworthy. So, if you want to see further discussion of this, uh, check out the debate that I did. Wow, I wonder what the date on this was. Uh, in London with uh, Adnan Rashid. And we did two debates in one night. And the first was on the transmission of the text of the New Testament. The second was on the transmission of the text of the Quran. And that's the one where I was, you had the fiery young guys right down front, you know, that were doing their uh, Allahu Akbars. And uh, I made a particularly good point and said, what's wrong? No talk beers? And I mean, I'm, I'm, they're right there. And I'm just looking straight at him. What? That was a good point I just made. How come you guys ain't going to Allahu Akbar now? <laughs> they, they had never had anybody do that before. Um, I, I think it really left them pretty um, amazed. That was live streamed? Wow. Rich says that was live streamed and he was freaking out because he was watching me do that. But um, from a church that was live streamed? That's interesting. Um, so anyways, um, you can go look at that and you might find the uh, encounter to be uh, to be interesting. Uh, huh. Do we have everything up and running as far as the link? Because I've got someone saying, is there a rain delay? All is working well. Oh, it's probably going to ask me for a link. I have no earthly idea uh, where the link is. So... Um, but anyway, it's on our Twitter channel. Yes. Okay. We press, we press forward here. The Samaritan Pentateuch, the Peshitta, the Targumim, which version? These are all very different versions. When he says they are all very different versions, that's just not true. Um, they have variants between them, but they're not telling different stories. And he could not identify because the author of the Quran had no earthly idea. The author of the Quran did not know what this man knows about the Old Testament text. The author of the Quran had had less knowledge of the content of the Jewish scriptures than this man has. Now, given that the Muslim idea is there is not even the fingerprint of man upon the Quran, therefore it's Allah. How does this man know more than Allah did. <laughs> well, doesn't, but that means that the source of the Quran is a human who was massively ignorant uh, of both the Old and New Testament, knew more about the, the Jews in the Old Testament than the, the, the Christians in the New Testament by a long shot. But the author of the Quran thought that there was all sorts of stuff in the Bible that isn't in the Bible. Uh, mainly Gnostic materials, uh, Jesus speaking from his cradle, for example coming from a Gnostic source. A Gnostic source in the 5th century, in fact. And uh, so, uh, I will retweet this for... Uh, there you go. And so, it, it's really easy to say these are all very different versions. It would be just as easy for me to go, well, Ibn Masud's version is a very different version from what you have. So again, you, you've got to have equal scales. What's where is the consistency going to be? Uh, that's that's where you have to press them.
Jews themselves do not agree on what is canon between Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants and Coptics and all these different denominations of Christianity. There's not agreement on what the books of the Old Testament actually consist of. So, so now there, there's, there's a reason for you to, um, well, you'd have to listen to the debate that Jerry Matitix and I did on the Apocrypha from Boston College. Uh, but you can watch the debate I did with Gary Machuda on the issue of the Apocryphal books, because that's really the only relevant uh, difference are the Deuterocanonicals, which were never accepted by the Jewish people. They weren't laid up in the temple. Uh, it would be interesting, I, I, I wonder if I could find this debate, it'd be interesting to uh, see how an Eastern Orthodox person responded to that. Uh, because I've gotten different takes from the Orthodox as to their exact view of the Apocrypha. But uh, the Jews never laid them up in the temple. They were not. They were never accepted by the Jews uh, in, in Israel. There, you'll, you'll read books that will say there was such a thing as a Palestinian canon and then an uh, Alexandrian canon. That's not really true. Um, the Apocryphal books became popular amongst Christians primarily because of their inclusion in most manuscripts of the Greek Septuagint. Uh, but you can go back to Origen, Rufinus, Amlito, Sardis, Jerome. They all came to the same conclusions that these are not canonical books. Um, and it's it's Romans that tells us that the oracles of God had been committed to uh, the people of God, the Jewish people, at that time. And they never viewed these books as scripture. Uh, so there's there's actually very, very strong foundation for uh, having that particular view. And besides that, there's nothing in those books that would be at all relevant to Islam. They're just historical books. And really, the only reason there's dispute about them all, they're, they're so vacuous as far as any particular doctrinal content, is about purgatory. And even that, when you, when you read the, the story that is referenced in the prayers for the soldiers who had died with idols on them. That, that was a mortal sin. Uh, they would, you don't pray for people to commit a mortal sin. That's, that's not even relevant to the subject. So anyway, um, this is again, just throwing stuff out there for the sake of throwing stuff out there. Uh, maybe in the hopes that, you know, in these debate formats, no one's got time to respond to everything. You can throw out more stuff. You, you know, you could literally throw out in three minutes, so much stuff that it would take an hour to adequately, truthfully, accurately uh, respond to it. That's, and there are people who do that in debates. That's that's how they um, feel they win them. When you hold up your chart, that really doesn't tell us anything because you have all of this variation in the books of the Bible. Oh, well, that was the end. Okay. All right. So, uh, I didn't see the little thingy getting all the way over to the side there. Anyway, those are the types of assertions that we need to be prepared to, to deal with. And I believe we all should be. I, I Sure. Okay. Being able to read Greek, Hebrew, a little bit of Arabic. Uh, man, my Arabic's very rusty, but... Um, that's obvious an advantage, but there are fundamental factual 
realities that anyone can become aware of and be prepared to share. Most of the Muslims that I, you know, I've, I've talked about my many Muslim cab riding, um, Uber riding, uh, witnessing encounters. Uh, vast majority of them uh, didn't have this kind of background. This guy's type of background. Not going to be making that kind of argumentation. Um, and so you're not necessarily going to run into that. But, you know, you sometimes will. And that's why I say to everyone, one of the most important areas for a Christian today to be investing time in for yourself, your family, your church, your children um, is in the trustworthiness of Scripture. That's where the attack is. And this ministry has spent 40 years seeking to equip, provide foundation, provide answers on those very issues because it doesn't matter who you're dealing with. You know, we had to start doing that with the Mormons. And then you start dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses and you're like, wow, they're, they say they believe in the perfection of Scripture, but they've provided a, a gross mistranslation of the Scriptures. And when you really think about it, they have to do this, that, and the other thing to leave room for the governing body and its authority. We, we know what Rome does in regards to a denial of sola scriptura. Uh, the more you, the, and of course, dealing with atheists, I mean, they're just open about that type of thing. Uh, it is one of the key foundational, fundamental apologetics issues. And uh, the same thing is true in dealing with, with the Muslims. They've basically, most of their people are repeating secondhand information. There are very few who do firsthand study of the text in their original languages, things like that. But there are some. And um, so we need to be prepared. So I wanted to share those things because, once again, uh, this opportunity is now being presented to us. And the question is, will we hide in fear? Will we um, have animosity toward Muslims for political reasons? I've said many times I I am concerned that most evangelical Christians, their knowledge of Islam has come to them primarily from Fox News. And while I'm thankful for Fox News as a whole, at least there's something different than... Can you imagine if it was all MSNBC? Oh my. Um, that's reeks of 1984. Um, <laughs> that's exactly what they want, when you think about it. But... Uh, they are not a theological source of information. And so their understanding of... Well, I've, I've heard people on Fox News who claim to be Christians say some pretty amazing things about Christianity, let alone have any type of discernment about having accurate knowledge of Islam. And some of you might say, why do you need accurate knowledge? I mean, look at these, look at these animals that did these horrible things in Israel. Well, again... I've heard the same stuff you've heard. And I don't know how much of it's true. Neither do you. I, we, we don't. I mean, how can you verify anything right now? 
that's it, it's almost like the people who want to have continuous war are making it so that the people in the in the nations are all emotionally controlled and have no way of engaging in rational thought and analysis. We don't have journalists anymore. We don't have any type of you know, just plain old factual reporting. And like I said yesterday, there's just things that I've seen that they strike me as staged. There's Stuff just doesn't add up. And I'm not the only one saying that. There's lots of people. You, you go look and there's lots of people going, oh, this makes a lick of sense. It really doesn't. I mean... I mean, it was the folks in Gaza using drones and all this kind of stuff, and what, everybody in Israel go to sleep? I mean, this is the most, Israel's the biggest, uh, you know, observation state around. It, it None of it makes any sense. Um, and I, I don't know if we'll ever know the truth. But as long as you've, as you've trained everyone to just act on emotion rather than to be restrained and to analyze and to think about, you can control everybody. You can control, you can control anybody. And that's exactly what's taking place. And so the problem with that is that emotional reaction for Christians isn't appropriate because that leads to the huge gap in evangelizing Muslims. We're afraid to do it because we don't have a love. The only reason, you, the only way you can get over that fear is to have love in your heart. And if you don't have love in your heart, you're not going to do it. That's the way it is. The more information you've got, the more uh, effective you can be. So, all right, shifting gears. Uh, yesterday, um, sometime uh, last evening, I believe, maybe afternoon, I forget what it was, I had seen a tweet. I did not know who posted it. And I saw a number of people commenting on it. The tweet was incomplete. In other words, it said something true, but not enough to be fully true. And so I just thought, you know, I'd like to sort of provide some balance here. Um, <laughs> Amazingly, I had to get the oil on the truck changed today. It's a big truck, so I have to bring a tanker in. No, it's not quite that big, but um, <laughs> ten quarts is a lot of a lot of oil, and it took them a while. And um, I found out they got the wrong oil filter initially, and so that's what took so long. But anyways, uh, today's been amazing on Twitter. Uh, I've discovered that I've, I've been bought off by the globalists. Um, I'm not sure what they did. What did they get us? Oh. Rich and I wondered where the chocolate-covered almonds came from. Yeah, there, there's... So, so, there were two bags of chocolate-covered almonds uh, in in the office. So this this must be how the globalists bought us off is with um, chocolate-covered almonds. 
I, I, I'm sitting there in the waiting room and I'm I'm reading this stuff that that the globalists have bought me off, and I'm just like, what? Who's put something in the water? I mean, this is absolutely insane! Insane! What is going on? And so we've gotten there from a single tweet. And so here's here's what I wrote. Uh, I said, "Men are to seek strength?" Question mark. No, they are created with strength. They are to seek godliness. Women are to seek beauty? No, they are created beautiful. They are to seek godliness. And then I said, there is a theme here, you know? That's it. That's it. I didn't see I didn't say, oh, there's something wrong with with seeking strength. I said men are created with strength. It's isn't that the whole issue that we're talking about with a male swimmer uh, who pretends to be female? He was created with that massive wingspan and the bigger bones and the bigger muscles, and that's that's part of part of being a male. Um, and so there wasn't anything wrong in saying men should seek strength or that women should seek beauty, but for Christians. The seeking of strength is not just physical strength. It goes far beyond that. And for women, the seeking of beauty is not just physical beauty. There is, I have seen a, a beauty amongst women in the caring for their children, the caring for their household, the caring for the body of Christ, ministering amongst people. I mean, there, there's beauty there, You just, just astonishing. But it's not what's being sought. It's reflected by who they are. And all of that comes out because the actual biblical command is to seek godliness. It's to seek sanctification. It's to seek seek Christ-likeness. And how Christ-likeness in a man's life will be manifested is going to be different amongst different individuals. So, I didn't think it was a controversial statement at all. I mean, I cannot imagine anyone uh, debating this topic, let alone against me, but debating against anybody. Because the overwhelming Biblical testimony to being conformed to the image of Christ, seeking godliness, seeking godly wisdom, seeking to live in a way that glorifies the name of Jesus Christ. It's, it's overwhelming. That, that passion that is to be ours is a passion that does not brook competition in the Christian life. It becomes the origin and source of any other action whereby you're seeking to glorify God. Well, it didn't take long until all of a sudden I was discouraging anybody who was working out and trying to get strong and attacking people and all this stuff. And I'm just going, what is going on here? 
people who I thought were my, there's a bunch of young guys. I'm never going to listen to him again. So much. See, our elders have turned against us. But, and I'm like, I've found something I didn't know was there. I've found that there, now part of it was conviction. I'm just going to be honest with you. Part of it was conviction. You know how I know? Because I've experienced it. I've experienced it. I, I didn't bring it up. Um, now, I, I wasn't going to spend much time, but um, uh, Stephen Wolf jumped in on this. And of course, Stephen Wolf doesn't read anything that I write in any fair fashion at all. He's not a nice man. I'm sorry. That's just all there is to it. Um, and I have learned over the past few weeks. Now I, now I understand why I had the concerns when I first dialogued with Doug about that book. And those concerns have just expanded massively. Um, but I've experienced these things. There was a time in my life where I really worked on lifting weights. Now, I started off riding. Okay, what happened real quickly was in 1993, I had double hernia surgery. And when I recovered from that, I said to myself, you know, you're too young to fall apart. For the sake of your wife, for the sake of ministry, the gifts you've been given, you need to get in shape. You need to get in shape. You can glorify God by being healthy. Because when I was in seminary and stuff like that, man, I'd, I'd get pneumonia and I'd get sick. And yeah, I played some basketball, Benny, and and, and we'd, we'd play some some basketball. But I recovered from that surgery and I, I remember very clearly going, okay, what can I do? Well, um, I'm a really good tennis player. I went to state as a sophomore in high school. Um, but you always need to have somebody else. And that had just never worked out for me. I have to find somebody else to play with. Really good chess player, but that wasn't going to help a lot. And I thought, you know, when I was a teenager, I really enjoyed riding a bike. And in fact, I'd ride my bike from our house all the way out to the radio station, Sun City, and back again. And so in May of 1993, I went out and bought a $78 Target mountain sled. Um, it was just a... And man, for the first few weeks, oh, my tush hurt so bad. I went out, I think it was May 5th, May 4th, 1993, rode four miles, almost died. Went out May 5th, rode five miles, almost died. That first year, I rode over 5,000 miles. And I mentioned yesterday, D.L. Culliver really um, helped me a lot. He was deep in, into cycling at that time. And one day, he, after lunch, he took me to a, a bicycle shop. And they had this used uh, uh, Epic Alley. It was a carbon fiber bike. Beautiful bike. And since he was one of their best customers, they gave it to me for pretty much what they had into. It was like 500 bucks. Man, did I ride that bike. I eventually broke the chainstay the day I set my speed record uh, where I did a 20-mile ride at 25.65 miles per hour average speed. You all, you all go out and do that. You, you do that right now, those of you. <laughs> That's fast. And uh, I actually, I actually broke the frame. I was putting so much watt, wattage into the, into the chain. 
but he's the one who got me into it. And as I've mentioned, that was 161,000 miles of riding ago. So here I am with the kids uh, after finishing El Tour de Tucson uh, back in that time period, probably about 19... That's actually the same. That is the bike right there. I can tell you. I know you can't see it, but I can tell by the rims. Uh, so that'd be 94-ish, I think. Probably about 1994. And that's Summer and Josh. And uh, obviously, we did not do the camera angle real well. <laughs> so... so and then in 1998, I believe, I started lifting weights. And from 98 to 2005, I was a weightlifter. And this is me in about 2004. I would get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and slam a protein shake. I was dedicated. I was committed. And that was me in, in 2004. And then I tore up my right arm doing standing curls, Olympic bar, and 245s on it. And I tore up this, uh, this elbow. It's still torn up. There's many things I can't do with that arm. Um, and so I got back on bike. But then in 2010, um, I radically changed my diet. The weight came off. And starting in 2011 is when we started going up to Colorado, started doing all these huge, long, high-altitude rides. I think it was 2013. I rode 10,500 miles in one year. The next year, I started uh, running and rowing and did that up through 2020 when health issues started cutting back on all that. I understand I understand the buzz. I understand the addiction. I understand uh, you know what when when I'd be in an elevator and the door would open, there's a little old lady staying there. She didn't want to get in the elevator with me because I'm just I look like Jesse Ventura. And there is a part of you that likes that. So you'd wear the short sleeve shirts and you'd roll the sleeve up, make sure everybody can see the guns. And you might wear your shorts in such a way that I was never the big upper body guy, but man, my legs are still strong. 161,000 miles. That's a lot of pedaling. And I could squat like anything. I could do leg presses like anything. And so, you know, you're flexing your calves and you're, I know how it works. I know how it works. And you can become obsessed with it. it. It it becomes something that marks out who you are. And I get it. I understand it. And I understand that it can become an idol in your life. I am not saying that working out is automatically an idol. I worked out this morning. I was so thankful this morning. I was just about to get on bike inside uh, my Wahoo bike. I squatted down to pet my cat and I went into SVT. Superventricular tachycardia. It's the bane of my existence these days. Has been for three years now. We had it under control if something changed and we're not exactly sure what. 
and I was disappointed. I needed to ride this morning. I, I, I've got goals for the year. We're going out of town. And it can be really, really frustrating. No two ways about it. Um, thankfully, I got it stopped by doing crunches. <laughs> I've actually discovered that doing slow crunches about 65% of the time will get me out of SVT. Who, who would have thunk it? Anyway, I got stopped, and I rode this morning. Yesterday morning, I did a race, and it was a tough race, and I finished in the top 25%, and that's not even in my age group. So in other words, I was racing against 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, and I came in the top 25%. In fact, most of you who were ragging on me on Twitter, I could crush you on a bike, even now at over 60 years of age. Just a fact. So I've got nothing against working out. But I just, I will never understand how any of you could have read what I said who claim to be a Christian and open up the pages of your Bible and not realize that what I was saying was self-evidently true. That there can be no comparison of the passion that we must have for godliness in comparison to anything else. And I know, I believe me, I know exactly what some, because I've seen it. I know exactly what you're saying. Well, I, I'm just expressing my zeal for God by what I'm doing here. I'm seeing stuff. There is a unhealthy, imbalanced narrative developing amongst Christians that has more to do with how they trained boys in Sparta than it has to do with what the Bible teaches. What I mean by that is, if you remember the movie 300, they would take their like eight-year-old boys and throw them out in the woods overnight with a spear where there are wolves and wild animals um, to teach them to survive. And if they don't survive, they they shouldn't have survived anyways. And I'm seeing that mindset. That doesn't come from scripture. That comes from paganism. I'm literally seeing people who are exalting the idea of how big you can get your guns. That that somehow has something to do with fulfilling Christ's mandate for subduing the earth. Well, okay. And I sit back. And I go, let's think about top 10 men you can think of that have influenced your life, that have um, had a positive benefit from the past. How many of them were weightlifters? Spurgeon had gout. Uh, In the last few years of his life, RC was on oxygen. Uh, MacArthur, I guess, played football at some point. Sometime. But when I look back at the people who have had massive impact, they lost children when they were, when they, you know, the, the reformers, every one of the reformers lost children. Uh, Calvin, a 28 year headache. He wasn't, he wasn't a pretty boy. Uh, Luther had multiple heart attacks where he died. He wasn't exactly in good shape. He, he had, he had, massacred his body as a monk 
struggled his entire life. You look back down through church history, most, most of the godliest men struggled physically. They weren't walking around doing the thing, you know. In fact, I saw a meme. <laughs> Don't know if I can find it, but I saw a meme when I was at the car shop having the truck worked on and was uh, somebody taking my face and they used, you know, that face that, that, that real masculine bearded man thing. And, uh, I think it was who radicalized you. And then the face comes up to me and says, you did <laughs> as if I had said this all happened in 12 hours. Wow. I was, that was really fast. It's, the imbalance and the childishness that I've seen in response to what should be a mature conversation is extremely, extremely concerning to me. It, from a pastoral level. Because on a pastoral level, I remember a certain individual. You might have known him, Rich, if I told you about it off air. Another church. I uh, got into his mid to late 50s and was diagnosed with low T. And so the doctor started giving him testosterone injections. Now, I'm not saying this happens to everybody. I'm simply giving you a real-life example. And the result was this individual slowly just drifted away. Their priorities changed. What they wanted in life changed. And they left the faith. They left the faith. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. I have seen young men become so enamored with their power and their strength and their muscles that they became, they fell in love with the world and they walked away. And if you haven't seen it, then you're blinder than a bat. It is a pastoral concern and every pastor in this audience knows it is. But I can just hear what this one. Yeah, but uh, it's just, uh, you know, you just want us all to be fat and slovenly and, oh, really? Did you see the pictures I showed you? Did you see the pictures I showed you? Don't even give me that. Stick that in your ear. I don't need it. Tell you what, if you, if you think I'm actually saying I want people to be fat and slovenly, here, do this. Do this. This was July 9th, 2016. Please notice, this is the double, double triple bypass, 2016, east-west. 188.7 kilometers, about 120 miles, 117, something like that. 3,126 meters of ascent. That's over 10,000 feet. Just so you know, it's between 7,500 and 12,000 feet above sea level. This is high altitude riding at 22.9 kilometers per hour. And here's the thing. That's July 9th. Click. And it went back to July 9th. Oh, lunch ride. Never mind. Come on. Get me to July 10th. It does not want to get me to July 10th, so I won't be able to do it. But July 10th, for some reason, I don't know why it's stuck on going back and forth between this. Oh, Anyways, July 10th will be the exact same ride, but in reverse. So in other words, two days, there it is, July 10th. Yay! July 10th. 
188.72 is 0.02 kilometers farther. Same speed, amazingly. Both of them, 8 hours, 15 minutes. That's 120 miles, 10,000 feet of climbing. So in two days, 240 miles, 20,000, 21,000 feet of climbing at high altitude. Don't tell me that I'm sitting here saying, I want you all to be fat and slovenly. Because there's only a few people in this audience that could do what I did then. So don't, don't even give me that stuff. I don't want to hear it. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And it's a lie. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is there's a far greater danger of appealing to the foolish pride of life amongst young men. If, you'd, if you've never seen it, then I don't know what you've been doing. You're not in pastoral ministry. There is nothing at all controversial about saying that the most important thing for a Christian is Christ-likeness. And that will not look the same for everybody. And if you're going to invest yourself to become some ripped monster, you better be able to explain how that is the best way for you to be Christ-like. Because I know there are a number of times that I probably didn't need to have lifted as long as I did, and there were more important things I could have done. Same thing on bike. At least on bike, I learned how to redeem that time. That's where I would read and prepare and do all that work. But there should not be any controversy about this. And people are, people are saying, yeah, but, you know, uh, we've got all these metrosexuals. I thought we were already disgusted with them. Don't we mock the man buns every day? I didn't even think that was a question. I didn't even think that was a question. But I am seeing amongst a certain range of Christians, a certain bent, and yes, normally connected to the new phrase of the day, Christian nationalism. And all of a sudden, it's like, if I'm going to listen to you, you're going to be promoting this. You know, this muscular Christianity. And I have no more respect for that than I have for the whiskey and stogies stuff. Hey, if you want to work out, fine. I do too. Um, good luck, man, because... Once the body starts getting old, you get injuries, and you, you just can't do what you used to do. And hey, I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it. I'm on track for 6,000 miles this year. That ain't what I used to do. That ain't what I used to do. But it's a whole lot more than almost anybody watching this is doing. And I'll probably not be able to do as much the year after that. And yeah, seeing this is... But you know what? God made us to live only a certain amount of time on this earth. So, I guess you have your microphone up. I guess that means something. As usual. Um, you know, you talk about it not being controversial. And when I saw you post that, I immediately thought of this passage because I just, the response to this 
I'm utterly flummoxed by. Because I immediately went to this passage, 1 Timothy 4, 6. In pointing out these things, the brethren, to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with, and this is interesting regarding the response that you've gotten here, have nothing to do with the worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And what I've witnessed from these men for the last 24 hours, almost, has been an outright uh, unacceptance, refusal to accept it. And it, what I've not understood is they're not arguing with you. They're arguing with the clear teaching of Scripture. It's not saying there's no profit in bodily discipline. It's saying there's little profit in comparison, in comparison. to godliness, what which I said. was your initial point. It was. And the fact that and some it just seems like over the last few months we've seen so many young men screaming the law the law the law and yet they are so quick to break the ninth commandment <laughs> when it comes to brethren well especially in social media yeah and so i just I, well i've gone a long time on this let me let me just um stephen wolf responded um when I got down with the program yesterday, I, I said, I posted quickly that, you know, I had seen some of the stuff that was being posted, and Stephen Wolf said, it's like saying that we should not cultivate a taste for visual beauty because a blind Christian man can't, and he's equally called to godliness. Can I read that again? This is the author of Christian Nationalism, okay, the book, Christian Nationalism, published by Canon Press. This is the author who is not a post-millennialist, um, it's like saying that we should not cultivate a taste for visual beauty because a blind Christian man can't, and he's equally called to godliness. No. It is like recognizing that God gives differing gifts to different people, but we are all called to have the same primary passion of godliness in our lives, and that is going to manifest itself differently. To say that every man has to be concerned about the, the size of his biceps um, is absurd. It's just simply absurd. Now, if you enjoy lifting weights, and you can do that in such a way as to honor God and not become entrapped in arrogance... Do it so that you're not showing yourself off to other people, not attracting attention in an ungodly fashion. If you can do it as a servant, great. But is there anyone in this audience who can be honest enough to admit that that's a huge temptation? When you have success, it's a huge temptation to show off. It's a temptation. We've all given into it. So why is anyone arguing about this? I don't know, except that 
it has become a meme. And I'm really disappointed to people I see picking up this meme. Well-known names saying, oh, you're, you're ragging on us all for getting fit. Has nothing to do with anything. It has everything to do with warning there needs to be balance. And that balance is provided by looking at what Scripture says is the primary command. And you see, me and, well, Justin Peters was at G3. Justin Peters cannot lift weights. He is in a wheelchair. When he was in Israel a few months ago, he had to be carried around everywhere. He went. Hats off to all the guys that did that. I mean, fantastic. Are you telling me that God did something wrong? That Justin Peters is less manly as a result? Of course not. So don't put yourself in the position of judging others. From a pastoral perspective, there is danger in pride and arrogance. And one of the most prideful and arrogant places on the planet is a gym. You know, the amazing thing is, this is such a first world argument. So many of our brothers and sisters live in a world where they wouldn't have enough extra calories in a day to even try to work out. They can barely get through what they have to do to gather their food. And we're arguing about this? You say, well, you're the one arguing. I'm just going, I literally had people, I said last night, well, at least I know where I'm going to go on Sunday. Because last Sunday I preached on apostasy. I really hadn't decided yet where I was going to go this Sunday. And I'm like, well, I know where I'm going to go now. I had people coming down on me like that, for that. And I'll bet you most of them never preached a sermon in their life. Hope they never do. It's amazing. The responses were acerbic and nasty. And that's what tells me, at least for those who are truly Christians, I think part of it was just simply, they know that what I'm saying is true. And they're reacting against it. Oh, don't, don't. Don't say it about me, because they know deep down inside. Yeah, I'm I'm proud of what I've done. And I, I like when people oh, see those see those guns, you know, you know. That's what guys do, you know. Someone pats you on the shoulder and you immediately, you know, get that get that muscle out there. You know? Yeah. See, I know. Been there, repented of it. So if you want to work out, if God's blessed you with wonderful genetics, great. Guess what? You will age. And you will never be able to look back and go, I wish I had worked out more and done less for the kingdom of Christ. Never happen. It'll never happen. And those big muscles will get smaller. It's the way it is. It's the way it is. I can't put out the watts I used to put out. Oh, man, could I? Could I crank watts? Can't anymore. I'm doing the best of what I got. I'm thankful that I can still swing my leg over the bike and and go. And I hit 155 beats per minute on my heart rate yesterday. Um, I've got friends who tell me I should never do that. <laughs> but I can still get there. But I know the day's coming when I will swing my leg off that bike for the last time. 
And what I've been telling myself, this is something I've had to say to myself. When that day comes and I have to sell those bikes and the shoes and get rid of all the cycling shorts and I can't ever do it again. Is my attitude going to be one of disappointment and lack of contentment and complaint against God? Or is it going to be, thank you, Lord, for all those years. I've never been hit by a car. Came real close a bunch of times. (laughs) But I've never been hit by a car. And man, when I think of how many times I could have been, will I be filled with thanksgiving for the years of health that I was given? Or will I have an attitude of complaint and no thanksgiving for all the Lord's done for me? So I will not apologize for saying our ultimate, the the passion for godliness and Christlikeness is on a level that nothing else is. It's not both and. It's this alone. And if this gives rise to, well, I can, with accountability, do these other things to the glory of Christ, then great, do it. But I will not apologize for saying this is the most important. And I'm sorry, I don't see a lot of emphasis upon that in what's being taught these days. I thought I would try re-emphasizing it. Thank you to everyone who gave me very good reason for coming to the conclusion that it needed to be re-emphasized. It really did. So, with that, I will be preaching on 1 Peter 1, uh, 17 and following. Uh, I'm sorry, 13 and following. 13 to 17 should be. So this will be my text for Sunday, and we'll close up with this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's going to be my text. I think that's a good text for all of us to contemplate and to think upon. We will see you next week on The Dividing Line. We have some special guests next week as well, so... Keep tuned in for that. I think you'll find it to be fascinating. We'll talk to you then. God bless.